0: We've come this evening to the end of our studies in, in First Timothy. Well done if you've been with us for, for most of that series, 11 sermons, I think, um, to, to move through this uh, very important uh, short letter of Paul's. Just before we come to the text, a wee thing to announce to you, the, the back door between here and the car park, you may be maybe many of you will know this, it's not working this evening. So we have uh, this door on Prospect Road open. So you're welcome to use that as you leave this evening or or just the main front doors. Uh, whenever we leave after coffee time, we'll uh, be sure. Uh, I suppose what we're trying to avoid is anybody not being aware of that and maybe trying to, to force that door or play with it from the inside. Please don't do that, don't, don't use that door. Uh, allow us a chance to try and fix it. Thank you. So, First Timothy chapter 6, if you have that open before you, let me pray. Uh, Father God, one of Paul's charges to Timothy is to preach the word in season and out of season. Uh, Lord, we love to preach your word here at Hamilton Road. We We know that we don't live by bread alone, but only by by the word that proceeds from your mouth. So Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us this evening, that you'd feed us again in your word, amen. A few weeks ago when I was preaching in this series from the middle of the book of 1 Timothy, I started with a, a bold kind of a statement. I said that if we're not making beautiful people, and if we're not becoming increasingly an attractive community, then Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church should uh, shut up shop and call it a day, and so should every other church that takes the name of Jesus Christ that isn't enhancing his reputation wherever it is. It's not fit for purpose, and it should close. It was a bold sort of a claim, and I hope I made some go of substantiating it from the text of chapter 3, of 1 Timothy that evening. I stand by that claim, and I hope to substantiate it further this evening. Uh, We'll reword it a little bit this evening. But we're going to see this evening that the goal of the church, or the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ, is to make people who look like Jesus. If we're not doing that, then again, we're not fit for purpose. We'll come back to that later in our sermon if you look at the niv text you'll see that it splits our reading for this evening into three paragraphs i think they helpfully uh, split the the passage into three distinct but related subjects So i'm going to use three headings suggested by john stott for each of these paragraphs first of all in verses 11 to, to 16 there's a charge to the man of god Then in verses 17 to 19, there's a charge to the rich Christian. And then in verses 20 to 21, there's a charge to Timothy. What I'm going to do is to change the order a little bit. And that's to to deal with the second paragraph first, because it allows me to, to continue in the flow of what Noble had us thinking about a couple of weeks ago. Then I'm going to deal with the first paragraph and then touch very briefly on the third So, let's begin at verse 17, where Paul gives Timothy a charge to rich Christians. Paul has been talking about wealth throughout chapter 6, but the focus here is slightly different than it was in the earlier verses which Noble looked at. If you scan up the chapter, you'll see verses 3 and following that Paul's talking with Timothy about false teachers. If they're teaching a different gospel than the one Paul first preached in Ephesus, then they're creating controversies and quarrels that lead to friction and strife. These false teachers, says Paul, have given up on the truth because they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So, Paul's been talking about money in a very particular way. He's talking about preachers who'll tickle the ears of an audience to ensure that the offering and the stipend are as high as they can possibly be. It was an issue, obviously, in Ephesus in Paul's day. It's an issue today in places as diverse as Africa, North and South America, and pretty much everywhere where the gospel is preached. The answer to this false teaching aimed at generating profit for the preacher, says Paul, is to keep preaching the true gospel, verse 2b, and to discover the liberating freedom of godly contentment, verse 6. We might say that in those early verses of chapter 6, Paul's presented money in a negative way light. The love of money, he says, verse 10, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the truth and have pierced themselves with many griefs. We've got to be careful not to take one thing that the Bible says about money and make it the whole of what the Bible says about money. And and this chapter itself is a good example of that. If Paul's presented money in a negative light in the opening verses of the chapter, I'd like to suggest that he addresses money in a much more positive light in verses 17 to 19. Notice a couple of things. Notice first of all that Paul's teaching here assumes that at least some of the people in the church in Ephesus are rich. Paul doesn't ask Timothy to shame them, He doesn't command them to give away everything that they own instantly. Notice rather what Paul does want to do. He wants to keep the rich responsible. He doesn't disqualify saying them, you're rich so you couldn't possibly be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You'll never be as spiritual as the rest of us who aren't rich. Paul doesn't do that. He keeps the rich believers part of the team and he keeps them responsible with two commands for how they should live with their wealth. We find the first command in verse 17. Command them, Timothy, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in their wealth. Paul knows what we all know, that when we're financially secure, we're prone to feeling superior. I have all this wealth, Because I worked harder. Or because I'm smarter. Or because I'm more frugal than all those poor people around me. Paul notes too that if we have money that we're prone to put our hope in our money, we equate financial security with true security or or final security. Don't do that. Says Paul. Don't be arrogant and don't put your hope in your wealth. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Don't put your hopes in the gifts. Keep your hope in the giver, the one who's been kind enough to give you all of this. Put your hope in God. Stay humble and stay grateful. So that's Paul's first command, verse 17. The second command to the rich is to put their money to work in the kingdom. Command them to do good. Folks, I've lost count of the number of times in this letter, when you add to it the pastoral epistle to Titus, Paul's always commanding these these assistant ministers of his, make sure you teach the people to be good. And I've spoken to you a number of times about this, and I won't stop. Why does Paul keep talking about Christians being good? Is it to earn favor with God? No, we know it's not. Our good deeds buy us no favor with God. No, the reason those who have been saved by grace through faith learn to live good lives is so that they can be what they're called to be, the pillar and foundation of the truth to enhance God's reputation before a watching world. So, how do rich people in particular do good? Back to verse 18, they're to be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. So, I say, if you're wealthy here this evening, don't be afraid of having money. And don't disqualify yourself from a life of dynamic discipleship. Don't say to yourself, oh, I could have been someone who was sold out for God, but guess what? I ended up with money instead. That's a false dichotomy that's far too prevalent in the church. Stay responsible. Use every gift that God has given you for His glory. Normally when we're spending our money, we're looking at the value for money question. We're asking the question, how much of this product or how much of that experience can a pound buy me? That's, that's normal. We're always uh, asking that question. Paul wants you to put that question behind you and ask a different question. Paul's asking you to try and get glory for money. How much glory for God can I buy with this pound? How much glory for God can my wealth uh, generate? Once you start thinking that way, then you'll be using your wealth in the way that God intended it. Instead of being a vice that distracts you from God, your money will become another gift to use for God's glory. Anyone who lives this way, Paul says, verse 19, will be making the best possible investments and will enter into the best possible kind of life, they'll be taking hold of the life that really is life. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If I spend my money for for my own temporary aggrandizement and enjoyment, I've squandered it. If I spend my money to buy glory for God, I've spent it for the one thing, that will stand in eternity. At some point over the next few years, I'd like to teach a short topical series on money. Um, Why would I do that? Well, Jesus talked a lot about money. He seemed to think it was very important for His faithful followers to learn to think about money. For tonight, let me get the ball rolling with a a provocative question arising from Paul's teaching. Should Christians be poor? Is it better to be poor than to be wealthy? John Wesley had no qualms about answering this question. He was absolutely certain that it was better to be poor Wesley, like many people today, was deeply troubled by the impact that wealth was having on many in the church. His own followers, uh, Wesley's own followers, generally came from uh, the lower economic classes. And what he observed was that through his gospel preaching and the conversions that came with it, his followers ended up becoming wealthy many of them became selfish and indulgent. They lacked self-denial. And this really troubled Wesley to the point where he cried out in one of his sermons, I'm distressed. I know not what to do. He even suggested that true scriptural Christianity has a tendency in the process of time to undermine and destroy itself. It begets diligence and frugality, which makes one rich. Riches in turn naturally beget Pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive to Christianity. Now, please hear me. I have a great deal of respect for John Wesley, a man used of God like that. But let me say, I think he's got this wrong. For all of his genius in gospel preaching, he didn't seem to be able to conceive of a Christian discipleship robust enough to produce people capable of holding possessions and power without being corrupted by them. That, I think, is what Paul is advocating for, or at least allowing in this passage that that people can hold resources. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, shame the rich, Tell them to give away everything that they have or they won't have any right to be called faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They'll have no role in Jesus' kingdom. What Paul does say is, teach the rich to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Paul taught that because he believed it was God's will. Paul taught it because he believed it was possible. Charles Wesley John Wesley, sorry, didn't believe that we could hold money and wealth without being possessed by it. I've thought long and hard about this over the years. Surely Wesley must have known that no one loves and trusts money more than those who don't have it often. And certainly he would have known Jesus' words if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Giving alone can't secure a proper relationship with God. Wesley came up with this deeply flawed solution to the problem of wealth as he saw it. Listen to this heartfelt exchange to the rich, challenge to the rich in a a sermon extract. Do you gain all you can and save all you can? Then you must by the very nature of things grow rich. Then if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, give all you can. Otherwise, I can have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. Okay. Okay let's try to land this in a recognizable way in our real lives let's take a test to see what we think about the role of wealth in the life of a disciple of jesus suppose that by owning a great deal of property and money you're able in the long run to give much more away and to do much more good for others or to contribute to the spread of the gospel than if you simply gave your money away to the poor as it came into your hand. Suppose as well that by being successful in business or in some other sphere, you have a wide range of influence over your employees or associates or others in the community. And suppose that you use that influence to set an example by how you live, to be a foundation and pillar of the truth, as we've been talking about in First Timothy. The question then is, would you necessarily be a holier person and a better steward of God's grace and goods if you were merely to rid yourself as quickly as possible of all your property and money? Let me compress that test into a simpler one still. one sincere, devout Christian is poor. He's just about enough money to get by on. Another is equally sincere, but he's a successful business person who has significant financial resources and uses them wisely for godly purposes. Is the poor person a better person and servant of God merely for having only enough money to live on? My sense is that many godly people think that we are The better person for being poor john wesley certainly did in his journal for september the 6th 1750 he notes a a published account of the passing of one of his colleagues in ministry the deceased were told that hardly enough possessions to pay for his funeral and that pleased wesley he said enough for any unmarried preacher of the gospel to leave to his executors Wesley clearly thought at a good thing that this man should have so little possessions at his death. But would it not have been equally good or even better if it had been found that he had great possessions, carefully managed for the good of others and the glory of God? Especially if he had turned out that he had done more good in that way than he could have done by giving it all away. Surely it would have. As I say, I'll get a chance to look at the the subject of wealth and our discipleship in more depth in the future, but for now, Paul wants Timothy to command those who are rich to be rich in good deeds and to be willing to share. We've thought about a charge to the Christian rich in verses 17 to 19. Let's take a moment now to see Paul's charge to the man of God, verses 11 to 16. I'm sure it's obvious to you when Paul says, but you, man of God, in verse 11, that he's referring to Timothy, to whom he's written this letter. But I want you to notice that the things that Paul says in this paragraph aren't applicable only to Timothy. They could be universally applied to anyone in the position of leadership and responsibility. And since all disciples of Jesus Christ are disciplers who make disciples, that's all of us. When Paul refers to Timothy as a man of God, I think he's using a carefully chosen title. In the Old Testament, leaders of God's people like Elijah and Elisha, for example, were referred to in this way. And when you bear in mind that Paul's encouraging Timothy to refute false teachers, uh, he's mentioned them again in verse three of this chapter, it's likely that Paul's trying to strengthen Timothy saying, Timothy, just as Elijah and Elisha confronted those who were leading God's people astray in their day, you're the man of God for your day. You need to do the same. What I want to do is give you a quick outline of Paul's charge to this man of God and then go a little bit deeper on one particular aspect of it. Paul wants the man of God to understand his present situation. A situation that's arisen due to the false teachers in Ephesus, and to give him advice for how to respond. Paul wants him to flee, follow, and fight. If you have a look there, he wants him to flee from the false teaching and ungodly motivations he's been talking about in the previous verses. We see that in the first part of verse 11. He wants him to pursue or follow righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness in the second part of verse 11. And he wants him to fight the good fight of faith in verse 12. We've seen throughout this letter, different preachers will have drawn your attention to it at different times. I think it's, it's maybe up to five times in this letter that, that Satan is mentioned. Paul wants Timothy to know that he's engaged in spiritual warfare, As early as chapter 1, Paul's been urging Timothy, verse 18 of chapter 1, to fight the battle well. This ministry that you're in, Timothy, it's no walk in the park. It's a battle. Engage yourself. Fight the fight. So it's no surprise that Paul repeats the charge here at the close of the letter. This is a fight for the truth in the church of Ephesus. And Paul wants Timothy to continue to fight for it. Paul wants to strengthen the man of God for his present situation by encouraging him to remember his future situation, verses 12 to 15. He wants him to take hold, take heart, and take comfort. Have a look with me, verse 12. Paul charges Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we know that, That we've been granted eternal life, but then the next Monday comes up, or or the next gloomy day, or, or the boredom and the mundaneness of everyday life kicks in. Eternal life can feel quite ordinary. Paul wants Timothy not to lose sight of the new life that he has in Christ that stretches into eternity. He wants him to live in the present, in the light of eternity. Verse 13, Paul urges Timothy to take heart. He does so in a very beautiful way. He reminds us that we live in the sight of God and of Jesus Christ. Timothy, you live before the same God who saw Hagar in the desert. He is the God who sees you. You live in the sight of Jesus Christ who suffered before you. He he knows what you're going through in Ephesus. He sees you. Take heart. In verses 14 to 15, Paul urges Timothy to take comfort. The God who sees him will keep him until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. Timothy, the false teachers in Ephesus, they they may have lost sight of the future. They have settled for living for financial gain in the present, but don't follow them. Keep your eyes fixed firmly on the future return of Jesus. Live to please him. Often in his letters, whenever Paul starts to talk about the return of Jesus he just breaks into praise it's brilliant it it often does nothing to contribute to the argument he just he just thinks of Jesus thinks of heaven and starts to sing that's what he does in verse 15 and 16 look praising God the blessed and only ruler the king of kings the lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever, amen. Paul's been talking about the future hope and he can't stop himself from praising. I said a moment ago that after giving you a quick outline of Paul's charge to this man of God, i would go a little bit deeper on one particular aspect. I'd like to take a few moments to think with you about Paul's charge to the man of God, verse 11, to follow or pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. There's something to pursue, a way of life I want you to follow, Paul says. We might recognize that. That's discipleship language. Our ears should prick up as those of us who want to grow as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I'd like to share with you for a couple of moments something I've been learning from from reading the Bible. That might sound strange, but what I mean is from reading a lot of Paul's letters all at the same time. It comes from my habit of reading across the Bible, the kind of thing I do in book by book. I've been getting a a sense of a feel as I read more and more of Paul's epistles to see what what he thinks about discipleship. What's it really all about? What's at the heart of it? Before I come to Paul's view of discipleship, let me share very quickly uh, an analysis of the current state of discipleship in our churches. When we think of Christian discipleship, a number of models come to mind. You'll recognize them all. And what we tend to do as a church is we we pursue one of them, the one that coincides most closely with what we think the goal of discipleship is. So first of all, there's what we might call the academic model. Maturity as a Christian is measured by how much you know of Christian theology or about the Bible. The good Christian is the one who can quote Bible verses or quote the reformers and tell you where they're found in the Bible or in Calvin's Institutes. If this is the goal, then it's not surprising that we make Christian education pardon me, <coughs> or Christian nurture primarily in the form of lectures, sermons, reading, perhaps discussion of books. In this model, every effort is made to get the per- person to turn up to hear Christian teaching. So that's one model, the academic model. Another model is what we might call the spirituality model. Here, the maturity of a person is gauged by the quality or the amount of time they spend in prayer. Christian development consists of learning exercises of prayer or or worship or contemplation. Another model of Christian discipleship might be called the social action model. Here the goal is to to go out there and make an impact on society, either through direct action or community projects. And in this model, the mature disciple is the one who signs up uh, and gets involved in the most practical projects, uh, visiting the elderly, helping at drop in centers for the homeless, or or demonstrating support for for justice for the poor and the oppressed. I'm not disparaging any of those. I hope that's not what you think I'm doing. Theology, prayer, practical action, they're all marks of the true Christian life. But none of them encompasses what biblical discipleship is about. None of them alone represents the fullness of true Christian discipleship. The goal of Christian discipleship isn't better theology, it isn't deeper spirituality, and it isn't more social action. The goal of Christian discipleship is that you and I become more like Jesus. One writer has said that the goal of Christian discipleship is Christiformity, that we're formed in the likeness of Jesus. With that bit of analysis, let me take you to some of those passages in Paul. In every one of his letters, I would say you could find some element of this. Think of the famous passages, Galatians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In the opening of the letter, Paul has taught us how in Christ we're, we're set free from the law. But the purpose of that freedom isn't license, it's so that we can live in step with the Spirit. And we're given the picture of a Christ-like person who grows in, in the, the character of Christ, in the fruit of the Spirit. Their lives are filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what a true Christian increasingly looks like. That's where our discipleship ought to be leading us. Paul gives a similar charge to growing Christians in Ephesus. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Again, he's talking about this this character that's to be formed in us. This is what a Christian looks like. This is where our discipleship ought to be leading us. In Galatians, Paul's used the metaphor of growing the fruit of the Spirit. In Colossians, he changes the metaphor and he talks about putting on the wardrobe of Christlikeness. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. And then it's another list. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Following that quick survey of some of the key passages, maybe you're beginning to get the picture. God's desire is not for us to have better theology or to pray longer, deeper prayers or to be more effective in social action the thing that He wants for us most of all is that we become like Jesus. That is why Paul finishes his letter to Timothy saying, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and gentleness. If these characteristics are notable in a Christian's life, that Christian will be effective and fruitful. If not, that Christian will not be effective and fruitful, no matter how much theology he knows, no matter how long her prayers, and no matter how much they march together for social action. Paul wants Timothy to continue to grow in the character of Jesus because there's no other way to lead others than in the way of Jesus. The goal is to be formed in the likeness of Christ. A few weeks ago I said that our church should be making beautiful people, growing an attractive community. Tonight we've said that the goal of the church is to make people who look like Jesus. Those two amount, of course, to the same thing. God wants the church to be increasingly filled with Christ-like men and women. He wants to be able to use the the beauty of Christ in us to, to show Christ to those who are not yet in Christ. That's the kind of community that God calls us to be, God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What is it he says as he closes the letter? Referring back to everything that he said before, this, this gospel that Paul has preached, this call for, for lives that, that embody the gospel and show it, that, that hold it, for the people in Ephesus to see. Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter, from the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge to which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Guard what's been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Grace to you, Timothy. Timothy. And grace to all with you in Ephesus who listen to the word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this part of your word that we've spent these last weeks studying. We thank you for for Paul, his love for you, his love for those churches that he planted, his love for the gospel, which he knew was the only safe foundation for those churches to be built upon. We thank you for his love for Timothy and the way he, he shared his his gospel and his life with him. Lord, we pray that we would hear this part of your word and take it to heart. Lord, we pray that we would for once and for all take up our responsibility to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Lord, for too long we have said If you want to know Jesus, just read about him in the Bible, but don't look at the lives of Christian people. For too long, we've excused ourselves from your calling. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to be the men and women, the community in this place that you call us to be. We pray for a day, Lord, if it's, if it's not yet today, we pray that it would be very soon that people in Bangor would come into this building and buildings like it because, because of what they've seen in us, because of what they've seen in, in our lives as individual people when we're neighbors and colleagues and friends but also of what they've seen in their lives, of of what they've observed of this community. Look at them. Look at how they love one another. Look at the, the beautiful life that they share. Lord, we pray that our lives would be for your glory. Lord, we pray that even our money, we've talked about that this evening, even our money would be used for your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.